And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainability Story podcast. I'm Josina Kamenik. I'm one of the three co-hosts of this podcast, which in turn, we, we take time to chat to luminaries, practitioners, uh, academics, stakeholders within the net zero and ESG, let's say, environment. And I think it's it's important to listen to us and, and hear the different stories and perspectives that each of our guests have. And today, I think we have a very interesting perspective because I have with me Thierry Filippona, who has a very long and extensive background, both, let's say, as an industry. He worked in a bank for many, many years and knows, knows the system, I would say, inside out. But he was also a co-founder of the NGO Finance Watch. And Finance Watch is a very interesting NGO because it was founded after, in reaction, let's say, to the financial crisis of 2008, when policymakers realized that there was no counterpower in the, in the lobbying of finance. And this organization is really serving as a sort of pull the alarm bell, I would say, almost institution. And I have been watching it for many years with great interest. And of course, Thierry, he was its first secretary general, and then he left to become chairman of the French Sustainable Investment Forum and was also a board member of EUROSIF, the European Sustainable Investment Forum, and also a director of the think tank, economic think tank Friedland. So I think, you know, uh, Thierry, now you're back since 2022 at Finance Watch as the chief economist, and you really are still analyzing your your pet topic, which I think is banking and, and sustainability, the two have come together because we're seeing that, and I think this is a, a comment that I found quite interesting at the recent COP28 by President Macron, that financial practices are not integrating climate risk at all. And notably in banking, I would say, and yet at the same time, at the EU and in other areas and regions of the world, we are looking at banking risk and we're seeing quite a lot of banking failures. We're seeing, you know, banks have an impact, but are they truly engaging in where we want to go towards net zero? And I think that is today's topic is really on what is the role of the banking sector in the net zero transition? And are we using it correctly? What are the risks? Are we seeing the true risks? What is the interest for the investors in the banking sector? How do regulators need to approach what is still being left out? We know that central banks have been at the forefront of sustainability for a long time through the initiative of greening the financial system. And we know the ECB is a very vocal, 
let's say, practitioner, and they have quite quite a few high-level people dealing with this and uh, at the ECB. But what can we do? What can we do to ensure that capital flows are directed towards building a sustainable economy? And the EU sustainable finance agenda, is that actually sufficient? We're going to dig a little bit into the EU sustainable finance agenda because it seems to be the most concentrated. So Thierry, this is a very wide question, but what is your take on this? Thank you very much, Christina. Pleasure to be discussing those questions with you today and reflecting together because this is really what this is all about. I think you're asking the right question when you say, you know, what can banks do and what can we ask from them? And if I were to summarize what I'm going to develop further, I think there is so much the banking system and financial system can do. So yes, the financial system and the banking system are absolutely essential. They're a central piece of the puzzle, but there's so much they can do. But let me develop a bit further. You're asking when, you know, how we can ensure that capital flows are directed towards building a sustainable economy. Well, let's look at what the EU sustainable finance strategy is trying to achieve. Basically, the EU sustainable finance strategy, sustainable finance agenda is built on better information, on developing better information, on the belief that when sustainability information is provided with the adequate quality and quantity, capital will flow naturally towards building a sustainable economy. This is really the fundamental principle underlying the entire EU stable finance agenda. And you can see it in the three building blocks of that agenda, which is SFDR, Stable Finance Disclosure Regulation, CSRD, Corporate Systemity Reporting Directive, and of course, the taxonomy. At the end of the day, this is all about information. So EU thinks, hey, I give the right information in terms of quality and quantity, and then capital flows will flow naturally in the right direction, if I can speak like that. Well, let me express a doubt here. Why? If financial markets struggle, as we know, to integrate financial information, which is their most natural commodity, if I may speak like that, to integrate so financial information into asset prices, as we know, financial markets are far from being perfectly efficient, then why should they be efficient when it comes to integrated non-financial information, when non-financial information is a much less natural process for them or much less natural commodity to deal with? And this is the question I'm asking. I would say that better and more Sustainability information is a necessary, but not a sufficient condition to orient capital flows in the direction of sustainability. Therefore, what the EU is doing is necessary, and the EU is right to be doing it. Despite all the imperfections, I don't think we're getting, maybe we are later, into the, the imperfections of the different texts on the table that have been adopted or in the process of being finalized. Um, but my point here is not there. My point is, yes, the principle is right. 
but we should not think that it will be sufficient to change the world. Yeah, and I think, let me come in on that because I find it absolutely pertinent what, you, what you're saying. Looking at what an NGO in the UK did recently, they analyzed listed the biggest listed companies on the London Stock Exchange and analyzed them for climate risk if they were showing the true risk that, that they had. And they actually found that in the financial statements and not even the non-financial statements, in the financial statements, climate risk was misrepresented or not present in 75% of the cases. And I think that that is to your point, is that it's incredibly difficult and it, it actually means there should be a change. And this is something I've been discussing with um, some groups that are brainstorming on the future of capital markets, is that you know, the, the current structure of the capital markets, of course, is not sufficient to affect the, the kind of change that we need to do in order to affect and, and go towards a, a net zero. And then, I mean, if we look at financial instability, you know, we see climate change is, is going to affect massively. And every year, I mean, and to, to, to give a sort of very pragmatic example, Flows of the recovery fund from the EU have been going towards countries like Greece, which have been dealing with the biggest climate change and fires that have been affecting over the last years. But what is happening in Greece, for example, is that the money sent is being used to post address. So what are they buying? More airplanes, more firefighters, etc. But they're not actually dealing with the issue, which is that you need to manage the forest you need to you know you, you need to plan before the fire comes and i think this is a, a general story that that i can see where regulators have problem and where you know we we are dealing with a very strange system where we're using the current system to affect something that is massive and and very different so sorry this was a bit long-winded but i get on to my pet topic Thierry. Um, going back to that financial instability issue and how regulations are addressing and, and can help fine-tune and really change the system. How, 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 what is your perspective on this? How do you see this? Yeah, thank you. I mean, you're putting the finger on something absolutely fundamental in the example you just gave. Take the example, and that will take us directly to prudential regulation, but take the example of fossil fuel investment. If you have been invested in fossil fuel reserves for the past three, four years, you've been very clever. Because for all the reasons we know, geopolitical and everything, it's been extremely lucrative. It's been extremely profitable. And therefore, from a financial standpoint, you've made a lot of money. You've been clever. Well done. Now, look at the very same topic from a sustainability standpoint. We all know the stranded asset narrative, and let me summarize it in a very short sentence. If we want to limit global warming to, say, plus two degrees, 80% of fossil fuel reserves will have to be left under the ground. So that means that 80% of the reserves will be worth zero. Okay. Now, how do we reconcile the fact that financial markets are saying, hey, I love being invested in oil, gas, and coal because it's profitable. And at the very same time, I know that, is it 10, 20, or 40 years from now? I don't know. 80% of that will be worthless. The 
the answer to this question is a question of time horizon. And time reconciling time horizon is really the heart of the issue. And this is the key question we have to reconcile if we want to make financial markets integrate both financial perspective, which is their natural purpose, their normal purpose, and sustainability. But now let's go into your question about financial instability. The current legislative framework, prudential framework, does not take into account existing sustainability risks. Let me take an example. And the example is exactly the one I just gave. Take the example of fossil fuel reserves. Banking regulation, namely CRR, capital re requirement regulation, tells us that if a risk is deemed to be particularly high, the risk weight that banks should apply to their exposure should be 150%. As we know, 150% risk weight means you take 8% basic capital requirements, so 150% of 8% is 12% capital requirements. That's what CRI is telling us. In the context I was describing of stranded assets that will, regardless of the situation, require that we leave 80% of fossil fuel reserves on the, on the ground, clearly fossil fuel reserves are particularly risky. Despite that fact, the risk weights received on or given on fossil fuel exposures is in the vast majority of cases somewhere between 20 and 50%, depending on the internal models and the ratings of, of, of the companies raising the money. So what I'm saying here is that when regulation says if it's very risky, apply 150, the reality is that we're applying between 20 and 50. Yeah. And if you go one step further, think of further exploration of fossil fuel reserves. Well, you think, well, if we already have far too many reserves compared to what we can afford to extract and burn, any additional reserves will just be wasted money. I'm not talking about, you know, the future of the world here. I'm just talking about investment, investment risk. It, that money will be wasted. You and I, you see now, as financiers know that if we still want to do something which is particularly risky, we should fund it out of equity. It's, it, you know, it's basic financial principle. You still want to do it? Fine. Fund it out of equity, not out of debt. So therefore, we should apply full equity funding. And what's really interesting is that in the very recent review of CRR, which is the EU uh, dimension of the Basel or, or implementation of the, the Basel agreements, all the legislators, the legislators, the co-legislators, parliament and, and council decided not to change the rules and to continue applying those very lenient rules to fossil fuel investment, despite the fact that prudential regulation does not cover an obvious risk. Long story short, it's exactly the same story with solvency to and investment in fossil fuels by insurance companies. So no, the prudential regulation does not reflect the risk that society is taking and financial enterprises are taking 
when they invest on fossil fuels. And that has basically two implications. That has a financial stability implication, because obviously if you don't cover your risk properly, well, we run the risk of accumulating a financial crisis on top of the climate crisis. You know, another way of saying that is that we might have 2008, 2009 again on top of the climate crisis. Maybe something not very desirable. No. And the other thing is, effectively, when you think about it, given the fact that the job of financier is to put a price on a risk, if you underestimate the risk, you underestimate the, the price. So therefore, the capital allocation process, without even without going into instability or financial crisis uh, dimensions, the allocation of capital is not done at the right price. In other words, we're subsidizing implicitly the financing of something that will destabilize the financial system. So we have something fundamentally wrong here. Yes. Well, you know, it's, it's so interesting. As I was listening to you, I was thinking that the real issue we're facing, all of us, with this tremendous challenge we have on climate and how to bring it into our financial system in the correct way is... I think, it, it, and, and again, I'm going to take another example because I'm all for very vivid examples, as you know. And I was recently reflecting on, you know, after COVID and the office spaces and empty buildings everywhere and the lack of foresight we have shown as sort of blindly following a path of building, which is not really um, where where our world is going to. And reflecting on the Middle Ages, where they might take 200 years to plan and build a cathedral, which is still standing 800 years later. Uh -huh. And why is it that people in the Middle Ages were able to really reflect in a very long-term perspective? Why is it that we, with all our sophistication, our systems, our capital markets are so short-term? And, you know, the whole issue of transition pricing of risk, looking at the true risks in the system is part and parcel. And I was in June at the IOSCO annual conference speaking to many different regulators. And each time it was, how can CFA Institute analysts help us price transition risk, look at transition financing to deal with the risk issues? Well, it, it is an issue, but you know, whenever regulations come out and you, you mentioned the EUCRR and the the, the recent tweakings of it, we're still not addressing it correctly. So, Thierry, I know Finance Watch has been very vocal on it. What is it, what you would propose that we can do to tweak properly and look at this issue? I think the key point in what you just described, Yusina, is to get more granular when we talk about risk. What does risk mean? Oh, Thierry, that's just you know, not a very interesting question. We all know what risk means. Do we? What time horizon are we talking about? The problem with our current system, and it's not an easy one to solve, by the way, is that risk is defined every second, I was, I was, I was going to say. 
In other words, well, first of all, we have, you know, all traders in the world, you know, mark their portfolios to market every night. So every day you mark your, your portfolio to market. And then, you know, fair value accounting at the end of the day, IFRS and, and everything tells you, you know, the value of your investment is their market value at the end of the year. Yeah. Hence the fact that, you know, if you take the example I was giving earlier of fossil investments, you know, comes 31st of December, take the photo for your balance sheet. Hey, you know, your investment in, in oil has gone up 40% this year. Well done, you know, full again. Um, and the people who made the decision get rewarded for that. And human beings, there's no judgment in what I'm saying. Human yeah. beings behave according to what they're rewarded for. It's a fact. There's nothing new in that. There's nothing spectacular in what I'm saying, but let's not forget it. As long as people will be rewarded on short-term profits or valuations, that problem will not be resolved. Because when you think about it, the one standard deviation move in a market is a huge event for a day trader. It's a complete non-event for a 30-year pension fund investor. Absolutely. Yeah. That And once you've said that, you, you've said almost everything. So do we want to be 30-year investors? Or do we want to be day trader? And there's no judgment about being a trader. Being a trader is perfectly fine. But, you know, maybe it should not be the part of the system. Let, let me give you a very concrete example. I love concrete examples as well. Solvency 2. I've been doing a lot of work on Solvency 2, giving evidence to the European Parliament on what should be done or not done precisely on, on, on the topics we're discussing. In one of the conferences, I was discussing this topic. I was saying that, you know, everybody agrees that we need insurers to be long-term investors. I could not agree more. That's on the asset side. And then I was saying, well, in that case, let's consider risk in the long term. And the response I got from, excuse me, the people who didn't want to change anything is, oh, no, 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 that doesn't work because we assess risk each year. So we're saying we want insurers to be long-term investors, but we judge their risk every year. That cannot work. It's it's just, there's an incompatibility here. Absolutely. absurd in the system. So but we, you know, Thierry, this, this is, um, even before the financial crisis, um, the financial system was going down that road. I worked in a bank up to about 2005 when I went to the European Parliament. And I remember, you know, my goals were extremely short term. And I was managing big loan portfolios for energy clients. And again, you know, we would not go into project financing, for example, for wind, because the timeline was far too long and the risk reward was just not coming out in the way we wanted it to come. And you know, this is again, you know, I know I went back to the Middle Ages, but even the 19th century, when they were building railways, they had a far longer horizon on risk and profit than we have now. And we, and you pointed it to that mismatch. And there is no blame game. It's just the situation we're at. But we should be able to match 
you know, both the long, both long term and, and I, uh, you know, on both sides. And I think this is, this is an incredibly important point that, that you raised. And we have to bear in mind that this phenomenon is reinforced by the fact that financial assets, by definition, when they are quoted, when they're listed, are liquid. I'm not saying it's wrong intrinsically. I'm just saying it has very broad and far-reaching consequences. If you invented a world that is not our world, where if you buy a fossil fuel company, you cannot sell it for the next 40 years, I'll bet you nobody would buy them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People buy them today, investors buy them, because they know that they can get out. And each investor has that explicit or implicit belief that he, he or she is smart, and we'll be able to get out before everything collapses. And in the meanwhile, we'll have benefited from the situation. And this is what created the situation we're in. If we didn't have that liquidity, fair enough, I'm reinventing a world that is not our world today. The situation would be completely different. So reconciling the time horizons is also about being conscious about that dimension. Yeah, maybe. You know, it's interesting because we're turning around, we keep turning around the point that we need to think of the financial system as not just maybe being profit-based, but also looking to the common good of mankind. And this is incredibly difficult because companies, you know, and investors, it's all about having the profits and it's not so much about doing good. And I think this is something that is incredibly difficult. I remember writing papers when I was in the European Parliament and, and the think tank part saying, you know, there's some part of that financial system that has to be for a common purpose. And then, you know, um, th th there ought to be, we, we ought to have a core part that is very long term, not subject to liquidity and where you, you get it completely different kind of momentum that is then able to affect this huge uh, change um, of how we need to react uh, regarding the climate. I mean, I, I can't remember, and maybe I'm quoting it wrong, but I think, you know, at the moment we, we're, we're using, I think, the equivalent of two worlds output, um, which of course is totally non-sustainable. Uh, so it's, 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 it's really... Uh, we are in a, in a, I would say, in a train that is going ever faster towards certain destruction. And I, I hate to be negative, but because I'm a very positive person, but sometimes this is what it comes across. You're, you're absolutely right. But let's take it one step further, if you, if you allow me. Um, this is about doing good, but this is not only about doing good. Because after all, the cynics could say, hey, I don't care. We will have a job in this world. You know, my job is not about doing good. My job is about making money. Okay, fine. But let's take it, as I said, one step further. There will be no profitability. As a matter of fact, there will be no economy if the world is not sustainable. So even if you don't care about the future of the world, you don't care about your children and grandchildren. Hey, after all, you know, as we say in French, après moi le déluge. Um, yeah. Fine. Okay. I don't care. You know, 
painting, you know, the complete cynic. Well, even for that cynic, that person has and should understand that there will be no such thing as a profitable economy or as an economy, as a matter of fact, if the world is not sustainable. And that seems to be forgotten all the time. Yes, and I agree. 80 or 90% of what we've been discussing today is about risk management. It's about financial materiality, as we say in sustainable finance jargon. Even before we can start talking about impact materiality, and this is absolutely essential. Um, yeah, and uh, you, you, you know, it's it's so. I I, I totally uh, agree with you. Um, I think it's 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 important to keep that that cynical view as well. Um, Every time that we see legislation come out, um, and, and we, to go back to the beginning, I think it's very admirable um, that the EU has been so bold. And it, you know, it is one of the regions in the world which has been the most bold with regards to sustainability. Um, but we see again and again the political um, will tweaking um, what comes out in the end and to focus a little bit on what's been happening in the EU for our listeners. Um, recently, um, and as you know, um, at the EU level, there is a, a two-way process, a, a two-co-decision-making process for most financial services files. So there is a lot of give and take between the European Parliament and the member states at the, at the council formation. Um, recently, the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, which um, was all-encompassing and also for banks, um, has been tweaked down in its final stages. Now, I have to say it's not final yet because the final um, wording hasn't come out, but there has been an in-principle agreement. Um, and again, you know, excluding uh, the financial sector from the scope of the directive is not going to help towards what we've just been discussing. Jerry, what, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's fundamentally wrong. Um... And I belong to the camp that says that don't ask too much from the financial sector. So I'm not saying financial sector is responsible for everything, but obviously the financial sector is at the heart of the economic system. By nature, by definition, every bit of GDP is finance. So, you know, financial sector is at the heart of the economy. If you exclude the financial sector, by definition, you're missing that part of the economy, which is everywhere. So if you believe that corporate sustainability due diligence directive is meant to achieve something, include the financial sector, because otherwise you're emptying, you're emptying the directive from one of its many main dimensions before it even existed. So this is, this is really wrong. The one thing that is not so bad in the CSDDD, Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, is that financial institutions will have to have a transition plan. And that is, that goes in the right direction. Yes, I agree. So, um, you know, let's not throw baby with bathwater. You know, there's some bad, I just mentioned them, but there's some goods as well. And transition plans are essential. The key about transition plans 
is to define precisely what we're talking about. Hey, hey. Good. Yes. Corporate due diligence directive talks about transition plans. Banking regulation talks about transition plans. There's a discussion about it in, in insurance regulations. The truth is that today there is no strict, there is no rigorous definition of what a transition plan should be. Well, yes. And until we have that, we have a very nice principle, you know, all good willing people will say, hey, yes, we need transition plan. Good. Job done. Oh, no, job is not done. Until we define very, very, very precisely what a plan is and who enforces it and what measures are taken if the plans are not followed. Until you've done that, you've done nothing. Of course, we have the corporate uh, not due diligence, sorry, um, CSRD reporting directive that talks about transition plans as well. And the European Systemity Reporting Standards, which are the standards that will concretely convert the CSRD into practice that are being elaborated. Difficulty we're facing here is that the European Commission last year gave instruction to the body in charge of um, thinking about the ESRS, European Systemity Reporting Standards, and, and proposing what they should look like, EFRAG. Um, by the way, for the sake of transparency, I'm a member of the Systemity Reporting Board of EFRAG. So the European Commission um, gave instruction to EFRAG to delay the work it had started to do on sector-specific standards. And that has terrible consequences. Why does it have terrible consequences? Well, very simply because we can all see that the transition plan for a retail company is not going to be the same as the transition plan for a car company, which is not going to be the same as the transition plan for a utility. It's obvious. You don't need you know, an expert to say that. Until you have sector-specific standards, you will not have a precise definition of what the transition plan for those different sectors are. And until you have that, we will be talking about, you know, yeah, let's have a transition plan. But effectively, we will not know what we're talking about. And now this is being delayed by a significant number of years. And when I say significant, the reality is that nobody knows. But we're talking about three, four, five, six, seven years, nobody knows. Um, that's eternity, given that the carbon budget of the planet is today five, eight years. In five eight years, we'll have exhausted the carbon budget of the planet and we'll have breached the Paris agreements. So we have no time to lose. And despite that, with the rationale of not putting too much burden on companies, which everybody can understand, we all understand that, we all hate bureaucratic burden, we all understand that. But this is the wrong reason. Because the reality is that if we don't embark in that direction, well, all businesses will be impacted. Yes, I, you know, <clears throat> um, this is a this is a, a a wonderful conclusion for our for our podcast um, because it where we have gone is say 
you know, it's not enough to say we need transition plans or be very generic about it. As you say, you need to be very specific uh, and very concrete. And um, I, I, I like particularly also that you do say, you know, we don't, uh, we don't want to overburden companies. Nobody wants to do that. But we know that time is finite. We have eight years and we don't seem to be going in, in the right direction. There are, of course, um, initiatives, but I think we need to get that feeling of urgency much more. And I hope that this podcast can help to build that feeling of urgency. Thierry, in your conversation today, it's been very, very interesting, very thoughtful. Um, I thank you very much for this uh, for this chat, and I hope we have many more on this. Thank you very much, Thierry. Thank you very much, Lucina. It was a pleasure. <laughs>